Uh, please could you give a very, very warm welcome as we invite to the stage uh, John White. John, thanks for coming. John, thank you so, so much for being here tonight. Um, and John, could you tell us, how did you become a Christian? Yes, I was um, brought up in a family of, of believers. Um, but as a, as a teenager, I felt I was sort of being brainwashed. And um, I, I went through a whole period of my life being very uncertain. And it wasn't really until I left home, went to um, university to study physics, that I then really was able to wrestle with, um, with, with my own beliefs. And, and, and the question I was really asking was, I was fascinated by physics and by science, and I wanted to be a research scientist, and I was thinking, is it possible to be a, a Christian believer and interested in cutting-edge science? And it took me a number of months of, of wrestling, talking to other people, and so on. But it was really at that point that uh, both I was intellectually convinced, it was actually intellectually credible to be a Christian as well as a scientist. But also, for the first time, I suddenly experienced Jesus as a living person. And that really changed, changed my life. Amazing. And uh, John, you have a very long title. Uh, <laughs> Emeritus Professor of Neonatal Pediatrics, Ethics and Perinatology at UCL, University College London. How much of that did I get right? Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. Yeah, I'm pretty going to ask you what it means. Yeah, can I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm glad that you're answering the questions tonight, John. Uh, can you tell us what that means? What do you do? What do you do during the week? Well, uh, I'm, emeritus means I'm now retired, but um, I, for a long time, was both a baby doctor working in a big intensive care unit uh, UCH in the centre of London, uh, caring for tiny and, and really sick newborn babies, but also a research scientist um, investigating new ways of treating brain damage in babies. And, um, and then I increasingly got into ethics and um, decided I really wanted to focus on ethics. And so UCL created a new title for me, which was Professor of Ethics and Perinatology. Perinatology just means before and after birth. And so that allowed me to engage in issues like abortion and other issues before birth, as well as issues after birth. Um, and uh, I, I think many people here tonight will be aware of there's a book uh, called This Is Going To Hurt, which has been turned into a TV show. My question to you tonight, John, is who would play you in a TV show of your life? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I find that program uh, very painful because it, it provides such a cynical and um, I think destructive image of, of medicine and I mean it's very funny but it's very cynical and uh, for me uh, medicine is is something that's actually a wonderful privilege to be involved in and, and healthcare. I was thinking about you gave me warning about this who would I like to be in, a, in a, I, I, I really love spy mysteries so I think John le Carre I think I'll be smiley, actually. That's, that's my thing. Fantastic. Brilliant. <laughs> Double life. And um, uh, on that note, can, can you tell us what's the, what's the um, most difficult thing about being a Christian in medicine and what's the most rewarding thing about being a Christian in medicine? Yeah. Uh, there are lots of difficult things about being a Christian in medicine. I think, for me, the most painful and difficult thing is just... Uh, being involved with people in, at the most utter tragedies of life, the most horrific, inexplicable, terrible things that happen to some people, and, and trying to be there 
for them and trying to enter into the pain, not to try and protect myself, uh, but to, to try and experience the pain and, and, and sometimes just feeling completely overwhelmed by the level of grief and pain and loss. Um, but actually, paradoxically, that's also the most rewarding because the, the most amazing thing about medicine and healthcare, if you're a Christian, is that you're called to be the presence of Jesus, the hands of, of Jesus in, in these painful, difficult situations. And there is no higher privilege of just trying to be the presence of Jesus. And, and sometimes I've realized that, you know, some of the holiest places in the, in, on the planet are intensive care units or hospices for the dying. Um, sometimes they're much more holy than churches, to be honest. You know, the, the presence of God is suddenly so apparent and so tangible and so real. So, and it's just, what a privilege to be there. Thank you, thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, and um, let me pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for John. Thank you for uh, enabling him to, to, to be with us here tonight. And God, uh, thank you for the, the places that you take him to. Thank you for the, the people that you uh, put in his path. And God, thank you for that, um, that sense of your holiness and uh, your closeness and your presence uh, in, in hospitals. And God, we pray that um, we would have that sense here tonight that uh, John would be very aware of your presence, Jesus, uh, amongst us here tonight, your presence with him here on the platform. And God, would you be guiding and, and speaking through everything that he says and would you make us very, very attentive uh, to, to listen to what it is that you have for, for each one of us here tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Great. Thank you. So um, let me see whether I can make this technology work. Could we have the, the first slide? I'm sounding like Chris Whitty now. Oh, yeah, here we go, the first slide. <laughs> so if you would like to uh, download the PowerPoint, you can do it from that QR code. Um, I'll show you the QR code at the end as well, so you don't need to do it now now, um, if, you're, if you're interested in the PowerPoint. So I've been asked to do a, a sort of lightning overview of a whole number of different issues. Um, that I'm fascinated by, uh, thinking about, I mean, and there are basically going to be four areas that we're just going to talk very rapidly about. But the idea really is for me to try and spark off some thoughts among you so that if there's particular issues that you then want to come back at me um, and, and, and explore further, then we, we, we can talk about it before. So I'm going to talk for about 30, 35 minutes. Uh, there'll be a short break, and then we're going to have about 30 minutes Q&A and discussion further. So I'm going to first of all look at some of the ethical issues that came up around COVID, the pandemic, and, um, and, and related to that, particularly some of the, the mental health issues that came from that. Then we're going to look very briefly at issues at the beginning of life, uh, ethical dilemmas and challenges at the beginning of life. Then looking at the end of life, um, uh, death and dying, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and so on. And then finally, completely uh, different area, artificial intelligence, what it means to be human in a world of intelligent machines. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a 
a wide area. Now, I'm going to start off talking about COVID. And to me, one of the most extraordinary things about COVID is the way that it forced us to confront the reality of death. Most people go through life trying to pretend that death doesn't exist and certainly that they're never going to die. And what <clears throat> I think the COVID pandemic did is it stripped those defenses away and it made many people confront this uh, reality of death and, and, and dying and those horrific images, if you can remember them, of mass graves and um, of intensive care units. I mean, isn't it amazing that here we are now suddenly in March 22 and when again we are seeing mass graves and uh, terrible things happening in Ukraine. So um, there's a parallel there between some of the issues we had to learn during the pandemic and we're trying to relearn them again because of Ukraine and the way it confronts us with the reality of death and sometimes very sudden death. A, a good friend of mine, uh, a guy, family man, guy in his late 40s, children, working as a paramedic, uh, he got uh, infected by COVID in the first wave. He was desperately sick. He, he lingered between life and death for about two or three weeks. There was sort of desperate prayer going on around uh, our church and around many other people praying for him. But in the end, sadly, he died. And um, it was just a terrible blow to, to realize that this guy who was actually um, infected during his work, as, as a result of his work, and he was then being cared for in the intensive care unit of the hospital where he worked. So there was a real sort of psychological impact of, of his death. And uh, again, we've seen these horrific images of um, intensive care units. Um, a friend of mine was working in the Royal London Hospital. He said the entire upper floor, top floor of the Royal London Hospital, was turned into an intensive care unit where they had more than 80 intensive care uh, cots across the floor. They had 40 uh, patients undergoing renal dialysis, artificial kidney treatment simultaneously. And, you know, for many people, this was their final vision that they had on planet Earth. Uh, it was the picture of a masked, anonymous professional pushing them into the intensive care unit. And that was the last thing they saw before they, before they met their maker. So... These kind of desperate realities, I think of both plague and war, of course, they're not new realities. They, they, you can trace them down through the history of mankind for thousands of years. But Christian people have always seen that plague and war are reminders of God's sovereignty, of his sovereignty over the nations and over each of our individual lives. And, and what plague and war do is they destroy this comforting and seductive illusion that we are in control of our lives. I mean, do you remember um, February, March 2020, all those things you were planning to do in 2020, all those trips you were going to go abroad, all those events you were going to go to, you know, my diary was full with a whole load of things that were going to happen in 2020. And at a stroke, everything uh, destroyed, cancelled. Uh, and it was just a reminder, we are not in control. And actually, it's very healthy for us 
to remind ourselves. And I think one of the real dangers, you know, is that as we come out of the pandemic, the danger is we're going to slip back into our normal way of living and thinking, oh, yeah, we can control our lives. We can plan. We know what's going to happen. We, we can. And, and that's a really dangerous thing because one of the real spiritual lessons we've got to take away from COVID and this new lesson, which, again, we're learning from Ukraine, is that we are not in control. We are ultimately dependent on, on a sovereign God. And that means that we're called to humble ourselves in repentance for our arrogance, for our self-satisfaction, for our self-centeredness, and instead to recognize that we are utterly dependent um, every day. A great Christian saint told me, that sometimes when he was walking along the street, he used to feel his pulse and give thanks to God for every heartbeat he had, knowing that every single heartbeat was a gift from God. It was just a way of reminding himself of his utter and total dependence on God. So we're called to humble ourselves, but at the same time, recognize that in in this sovereign God, as he works in our lives, as he works in history, there are going to be new opportunities for service, for witness, which may lie behind that. And one of the remarkable things that's happening with Ukraine is the way that churches and other people are getting together in offering refugees, um, the homes for refugees from Ukraine. And here is a dramatic, unexpected opportunity for Christian people to put their money where their mouth is, to, to demonstrate, if we talk about the love of Christ, if we talk about care, are we prepared to, um, to sign up and say we want to support uh, Ukrainian refugees. Or for that matter, many of the other refugees, it suddenly reminded us about the Afghan refugees, the Syrian refugees, and many other people that are in our midst. So I think it's interesting just to look back and say what vulnerabilities and weaknesses did the pandemic tell us? What did it tell us about UK 2020? Well, I'm afraid it shone a very harsh and uncomfortable light on many aspects of our healthcare. And one of the things it showed was that there was a complete disaster when it came to effective healthcare planning for pandemics. All of us in the profession knew that a lethal pandemic was coming. I remember five, six, seven years ago leading an ethics workshop on the ethical dilemmas that would happen if a lethal pandemic hit. And, um, and yet what was apparent even seven years ago is that we were hopelessly unprepared. And even though time and time again we tried to make uh, impress this on the government that we really need to make plans for a lethal pandemic, it was always the easiest thing to shelve and to say, well, it may not happen and we've got other priorities for our health budget and we don't want to spend it on PPE and on extra ventilators and all the rest. And then lo and behold, when it did actually happen, we were absolutely uh, unprepared. So the other one, another thing that it did is it shone a very bright light on how, how bad uh, healthcare for elderly people was in our society and particularly in the care homes, um, devastating um, deaths in, within many of the care homes. And again, it was all so predictable. It, it was all so obvious of how that would happen. And yet, um, it just shone a light on how bad 
social care for elderly people is in this country. And, it, and it's really outrageous when we are, I think, the fifth, fourth or fifth strongest economy in the world, um, and yet we cannot provide even basic, decent care for so many elderly people in our society. I think another thing is that it taught us about fear um, and uh, a very significant rise in mental health disorders. I'm going to come back to that. And then one of the fascinating things to me is that there was just a period in those first few weeks in the lockdown, I don't know if you remember that, when it was absolutely astonishing the level of community concern and care there was. People were offering to do shopping for elderly people, putting notices through the door, is there anyone here who needs any help? I'm offering to help, and so on. And there really was an astonishing level of um, a desire for us as a community to support one another. Sadly, it didn't last long, and uh, we seem to have fallen back into the kind of individualism and the self-centeredness uh, to a large extent. Um, and, and again, it just tells you something about human beings. And of course, we're seeing this in Ukraine now. The extraordinary thing about human beings is, is, it's, is it when they're comfortable and at peace and everything's going well, they become incredibly selfish, incredibly self-centered, and so on. And when disaster threatens, and there are so-called existential threats, then actually some of the most remarkable uh, features come out. This is the, what it means to be human, you know, the ability that we have to, res to respond to one another. Um, going on to, uh, say, vulnerabilities and weaknesses, one of the things it revealed was the incredible levels of distrust so many people in our society have uh, towards governments, towards health authorities, towards health professionals. One of the really sad things was there were very high levels of distrust, particularly in ethnic minorities, in Afro-Caribbean populations and in uh, Asian populations. Deep, deep mistrust about what was going on in the NHS and about the level of care that was being provided. Lots of conspiracy theories um, and, and so on. And um, the one of the extraordinary things about the pandemic was that at the very same time that this physical virus is passing from person to person in the community, and we all know about the R number, the, um, the, the reproduction number, and so on, at the very same time that a physical virus was passing from person to person, there were conspiracy theories that were doing exactly the same thing. There was an epidemiology of conspiracy theories and um, this is the pandemic of disinformation uh, showing the different um, S's for susceptible people, E are for those who are exposed to an idea, I are those who are infected by an idea, and R are those who are recovered from an idea. And, and this infodemic was spreading through the community with its own R number. And one of the interesting things is it's turned out it's much easier to control the physical virus uh, than it is to control the spread of conspiracy theories. And, um, and that's one of the things we've learned, but it's actually a very uh, significant and worrying trend, this ability for completely false ideas to riffle through the community and around the world and just reproduce uh, like an, an epidemic, an infodemic. And one of the things that I have... Uh, wrestled with and struggled with to try to understand is that if you look around the world, it seems that it's Christian people who are often particularly vulnerable to conspiracy theories. 
it's very often been people who at least call themselves Christians who have um, spread uh, outright lies, disinformation, uh, and, and bizarre ideas. And so then an interesting question, and we, perhaps we could discuss it later on if you're interested, is why? What is it about Christian people that makes them so vulnerable to conspiracy theories? And what can we do to help people understand the difference between truth and falsehood? And as we know, there have been uh, this really significant rise in mental health issues. Um, this is the blue, uh, the, the top graph is UK adults reporting symptoms of depression. 10% uh, July uh, 2019 to March, just, uh, just before the pandemic. 19% in June 2020. And in US, uh, symptoms of anxiety or depression, 11% pre-pandemic, 42% during the pandemic. And I mean, absolutely spectacular, gargantuan rise in mental health symptoms. Uh, during the pandemic, um, the, and um, this is another report from the WHO, 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide, a wake-up call to countries to step up mental health services. These are results from among students showing um, the incidence of mental health symptoms. So, I think one of the issues and one of the ethical issues we, we can is, and I'm sure there are many uh, people here who've been affected by mental health issues. And actually that was one of the things I meant to say at the beginning, and that is that the sort of issues we're talking about today are not just issues out there in society. They're issues in here. You know, I don't know anything about you, and yet I can guarantee there are a whole number of people here who've been affected by mental health issues, by anxiety and depression, during the pandemic. I mean, maybe the Ukraine and what's going on. I mean, um, just watching the news is, is bad for your mental health, isn't it? And I, I, so uh, I'm sure there are people here who are affected um, and, and thinking, you know, how do I respond to all this as a Christian? Uh, and some of the other issues we're gonna briefly mention, abortion, the statistics suggest that one in three women are gonna have an abortion in their lifetime. And for every woman who's involved, there's a man. And I'd like to tell you that, of course, the statistics are totally different within the Christian population, but actually all the evidence is not. It's just that Christians are much better at hiding it than uh, people who aren't Christians. Uh, infertility, one in seven couples will have infertility, lifelong infertility, and will have uh, difficulty in having children without the use of technology. So there are many, many people here, even though you may not know it, you're going to be affected by infertility later on, and so on. So I'm saying these things not to make you feel bad, but just to say that we're all touched by this. We're all touched by these issues. I have a particular interest in mental health issues, not because I'm a doctor, but because I was a psychiatric inpatient. I had a very major and severe psychotic episode breakdown while I was working as a consultant at UCH and ended up in a locked psychiatric hospital. And um, at one stage, I thought I was completely wasted. I would never have any kind of professional work or medical work again. I would never have any kind of Christian ministry again. And um, so these are experiences which, which touch all of us in, in, in some way because of our fragility, because God has made us fragile and vulnerable beings as well as glorious and wonderful beings. 
And so just thinking about mental health issues, I think it's helpful to, to realize just quite how complicated human beings are and that this is very much part of our creation. God designed us to be complicated. In fact, I think that because we are designed to reflect the character and the being of, of God himself, we have to be complicated. Uh, it, the only way we can reflect uh, God is, is, is this extraordinary way in which he's created us. And so if we think about mental health issues, there are four levels which are going on simultaneously, and they're all important. So there's a physical level, which is to do with things like neurotransmitters and chemicals in the brain, uh, with the actual structures and the genetics of our brain, and, and the ways our brain operates. And then there are psychological issues. There are things that are going on in our minds, our thoughts, our memories, our emotions, all that internal stuff which is, which is going on in our mind. And then all of us are locked into a web of relationships. Um, and uh, so there are relational processes, uh, some relationships with our parents and with others that we didn't choose, and those, those with our friends and, and so on that we do choose. And then finally, all of us, whether we like it or not, are locked into a relationship with Almighty God, who, who speaks to us through the Spirit, who, who reminds us of his presence, who, who woos us with his love. And so though all of those four levels are going on simultaneously. And the causal links between these different levels are incredibly complicated. So for instance, it's perfectly possible to start off with something happening at a physical level, at a neurotransmitter level. Uh, for instance, if, uh, following COVID, for instance, uh, many people have had um, significant mental health issues following COVID. It starts, the virus actually gets into the central nervous system, it infects brain cells, and that changes the level of neurotransmitters. That changes things that are going on in your mind. You see levels of anxiety and depression and other stuff going on in my mind. That affects my relationships. Uh, I, I find it difficult to relate to other people. It causes stresses and strains in my friendships and so on. And it affects my relationship with God. So, so there, the causal link, it starts with something physical and it affects other areas. But it can happen the other way. You can start off with a moral problem. Uh, somebody's having an affair um, with, uh, and um, a, a sexual affair or some other immorality. And uh, so that starts off as a relational problem, but then it affects them, their spiritual, uh, their re re uh, relationship with God and their sense of guilt. Um, and that then affects their minds or are influenced by these guilt feelings and anxiety and what happens if they're found out and all the rest. And then that actually can change neurotransmitter levels inside your brain. So these, the causal links between how all these things interweave, that's where the, the complexity comes from. But um, what we're called to do <coughs> is to um, respond <coughs> to be the means to others by which healing, comfort, restoration, forgiveness can come through us to people who are struggling with mental health issues. And I think a helpful idea is that we should aim to address all four areas simultaneously. So rather than try and unpick it as to, you know, is this primarily a spiritual problem? Is it a relational problem? Is it a psychological problem? What we should see is that all four areas are involved 
And therefore, we should aim to try and improve things at each of those four levels. Well, what does that mean? Well, physical is it's all those things your mummy said to you about how making sure you get enough sleep and you get enough exercise and you eat well. And, and, and you just look after, you know, I find for myself and my mental health issues, just getting out into God's good creation, into the blue sky or water or green or mountains is incredibly therapeutic just in itself. Then at a psychological level, um, one of the ideas I think is helpful is the idea of mental hygiene, of, of actually learning ways of controlling and monitoring our thoughts and, and focusing our thoughts positively on good things. I can speak some more about that if you're interested. Relationally, how can I improve my relationships? How can I improve my friendships? How can I deepen and, and, and focus on positive and life-giving relationships? And how can I withdraw from those relationships that are actually damaging me? And, and, and damaging my mental health. And, and finally, spiritually, how can I learn through this experience and reach out to God and learn more about his grace in my life? So we, the, the idea is we aim to tackle all of those four areas simultaneously. Okay, I just want to very briefly now shift to talk about the beginning of life. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have time to talk about these in detail. Again, if you're interested you might want to raise something in more detail. But the sort of issues, ethical issues, which I've had to face in my own work as a doctor and try to help other people. Uh, infertility, as I've talked about, is it right to use reproductive technology to, um, to uh, help people to have babies who are infertile? And what kind of technology, what is available, and what are the ethical issues raised by that? The whole issue of abortion, tragically, rates of abortion are steadily going up year on year in our society, despite the fact we've never had better sex education, we've never had better access to contraception, but actually, year on year, the rate of abortion is going up. And as I said, one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime. How do we respond to that as a Christian? There are a whole lot of technical issues about genetic screening, testing unborn babies before birth, testing newborn babies. This is a whole growth area, but it's raising lots of questions. You know, if, if you can predict that your unborn baby is at risk of developing cancer at the age of 50 or Alzheimer's disease or type 1 diabetes, you know, how do you use that information? Would it be appropriate to have an abortion if you knew that your child was at risk of, of these kind of medical disorders later on? and uh, the genetic manipulation of embryos. So thinking about this as a Christian, uh, this is a slide I often use when, when uh, talking to doctors and medical students. Imagine, uh, the question I'm often asked uh, is, when does human life begin? And I, if I'm asked that question, I gently push back, and I say, actually, you know, that's the wrong question, because what we know is that right from the very earliest stages, this being in the womb is human, and it's alive. So the question is not, when does human life begin? The question is, when is there a person that we have a duty to protect? And when you put the question like that, you realize that it's not a biological question. It's a philosophical stroke theological question, when is there a person? And in my book, Matters of Life and Death, which is at the end, I've got a whole chapter called that, When is a Person, when I, I go into it in, in greater detail. But if you imagine this, you know, on the top left-hand corner, that was what you looked like when you were born. Next one, that was what you looked like at 
20 weeks. Uh, next one along, that's what you look like at about 12 weeks. Uh, bottom left, that's what you look like at about six weeks. Next, that's what you look like at three weeks. And then finally, bottom right, that's what you look like at three days. And that's exactly what you look like. And the question is, as you go back into your own personal history inside your mother's womb, is there any point at which you can say, that's not me? That's just a blob. I don't think there is. I think however far you go back in your own personal history, you say, that was you. And of course, what Psalm 139 says is that God saw you when you were like that. He knew you, he loved you, and he was calling you into existence. Um, but then, of course, the Christian story says something even more bizarre and wonderful, and that is that God himself turned himself into a fetus. He turned himself into an unborn baby. And that completely changes the topic because, because Jesus was a fetus, then I think all fetuses are special because Jesus was a newborn baby. All newborn babies are special because Jesus was a dying man. All dying people are special. He, he entered into the experience. And you know, there's, there's, there's a sense in which there's absolutely nothing that you can go through in your life, which in some sense, God himself in the person of Jesus hasn't already experienced. As somebody put it, he was with us in the darkness of the womb as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. Even though you had no idea while you were this little baby in the womb, in your mother's womb, God himself was with you, seeing you, weaving you together, loving you. And in fact, Psalm 139 says every single day was written in God's book before one of them came to pass. In other words, this evening, this very evening, when I was going to be talking and we were discussing about uh, what it means to be an unborn baby, that was written in his book. That was planned to be. You were meant to be here. It was written in the book. It's interesting, if, if you ask yourself, you know, what did Jesus look like? Wouldn't it have been amazing to be on the Galilean road and actually see what God in human form looks like? Well, I can tell you what God in human form looks like. It looks like this. That's exactly what Jesus looked like. And he revealed himself to us in human form. And I think that really does change it. And it changes our understanding of abortion. I think, to be honest, it also, to me, makes the, the spiritual significance of abortion much greater. Because... In, in Christian thinking, in biblical thinking, the womb is a special place, a sacred place, a place of safety, a place of security, a place of compassion. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for God's compassion is rahamim, and the Hebrew scholars say that is derived from the word for womb. God's compassion is a compassion of the womb. It is a motherly, compassionate love. And the tragic thing is that the evil one has turned this sacred place, this place of safety and security, into the killing fields. It's said that it's the most dangerous place for a child to be throughout their whole childhood. And, on, and where is that place? It's in their mother's womb. That is the most dangerous place where your life could be extinguished. So 
how do we respond compassionately to the, to the issue of abortion? And I think a very important principle, if you don't remember much else from this talk, try and remember this thing. Whenever as Christians we say that something is wrong, we must immediately go on and say, and here is a better way. It's never enough to say that something is wrong. It's something that really distresses me about in the public square. We hear so much about Christians saying it's wrong, it's bad, it's evil, you mustn't do that. But I think whenever we just concentrate on that, it's a kind of sub-Christian response. It's not an authentically Christ-like response. What we see in Jesus is, yes, you say it's wrong, and then here is a better way. So what is the better way for abortion? And I think, uh, amazingly, is this development of Christian crisis pregnancy centers. I'm a trustee of a center called Choices Islington in North London on the Caledonian Road, and it's a, it's a Christian center that provides uh, free counseling for women and their partners with unplanned pregnancy. And most people find it through the um, internet on Google, and, uh, and they come and they uh, receive compassionate, uh, detailed counseling. It's not manipulative, it's not coercive, it's not uh, pushing them and, and telling them what they must do. It's simply giving them a safe place where they can feel and explore their, their own emotions. And uh, not only that, these centers provide post-abortion support. So many people in our society are riddled by a sense of guilt and shame, not just women, but also men, because of abortion in the past. And these centers provide a whole uh, uh, program of abortion recovery, of, of going through a series of, of confidential counseling, uh, going through emotions and so on, finding healing. And also practical support. So there's a boutique where uh, unsupported parents who are continuing the pregnancy can have clothes and baby buggies and, and things which have been donated. There's a befriending service. There's a community mums group. So it's this practical support, showing compassion, care uh, for those with, with unplanned pregnancy. Just briefly... As we showing the compassion and love of Christ at the end of life, we're sort of fast forward right to the end. And here it's issues like, what does it mean to die well? What about euthanasia? Is, is, is assisted dying? Is that an appropriate way uh, to die? What about, is it ever right to switch off the life support machinery and let somebody die? Um, and as you know, there's a whole movement to try and legalize what's being called assisted dying. Um, and uh, there's a very sophisticated uh, campaign being waged um, to try to persuade people that this is the, uh, that changing the law to allow doctors to kill or provide lethal medicines for patients who are terminally ill is, is the way to go forward. This is being repeatedly brought back. It came to the House of Lords uh, last year, it's just recently, there's been another attempt to legalize it in the House of Lords. It's probably going to come to the House of Commons later this year. And I have to say, statistically, uh, it's hanging by a thread as to whether or not this will get legalized or not. And, and tragically, if it does get legalized, I can guarantee it's going to have devastating effects throughout the NHS uh, because it's going to change the whole nature of, of healthcare. And when we look across at some other countries, particularly Canada, uh, it, it's very scary to see what, what's going on there. And behind that is the question of what does it mean to die well? 
And, um, you know, if you ask people how they would like to die, most people say, I would just like to die in my bed at night. I'd like to just go to bed, no warning, no premonition, no nothing. Just go to bed and then bam, sudden glory. Wouldn't that be fantastic? What a wonderful way to die and so on. And uh, it's interesting that if you were to go back a few hundred years and to ask people how they would like to die, sudden unexpected death was regarded as the worst possible way to die. In fact, in, there's an ancient uh, collect in the Church of England where you specifically pray against sudden death because it was seen as such an evil thing to be catapulted into glory with no possibility of preparing yourself to meet your maker, no possibility of saying goodbye to people, no possibility of asking forgiveness, no possibility of, of, of preparing for the end, was seen as a terrible thing. So isn't it interesting that it's now seen as the most desirable way to die? In fact, most, very few people die like that. Many, many people in our society die like one of these ways. On the left is failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is a terrible way to die with people jumping up and down in your chest and giving you electric shocks. Or on the right, people dying in an intensive care unit surrounded by technology. So the issue of what it means to die well, I think, is a very important thing which many of us uh, need to think about. And it's interesting that in Christian thinking about death, there's a kind of ambiguity. On the one hand, death is an enemy which we fight against and try and hold back. And many times in my medical career, I was struggling at the cot side of a, of a sick baby and desperately, sometimes working throughout the whole night, just trying to keep death away from this baby. And yet, there are points where actually death can change from being an enemy into a strange kind of healing, what C.S. Lewis called a severe mercy, and even a gateway into a new reality. And so the whole art of medicine is to know when we fight against death and when we say enough is enough, it's time to take our hands away and allow death to occur. And again, whenever we say that something is wrong, and I believe passionately that killing patients is wrong, that assisted dying is wrong, what is a better way? Well, answer, there is a better way. And it was invented uh, almost single-handed by this amazing lady who was a Christian doctor uh, Cicely Saunders, working in London, not far from here, actually, uh, and, and inventing a whole new way of caring for, for dying patients in the 50s and 60s. You, uh, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the end of your life. Not only will we help you to die well, we'll help you to live before you die. And you don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. So, um, wonderfully... Palliative care is an amazing way of providing holistic care for people who are dying. And um, it's made me realize that dying well is a fantastic opportunity. It's not all just doom and gloom. There are amazing, I have seen time and again, the most remarkable things that have happened just in the last days and weeks before people have died. I've written a book called Dying Well, which is at the back. And if you're interested in that, I've got some of the stories of real true stories of people whose lives uh, were changed by the experiences of dying well. It's a time for focusing on the things which really matter, a time for saying sorry, being reconciled, a time for receiving grace, for fulfilling dreams, for focusing, for relinquishing tasks, for learning new lessons, preparing to meet my, my maker. 
So we're called to engage in this world of, of, of death and dying, of, of life. And we're called to engage it for Christ. You know, the astonishing thing is, as Paul says in Ephesians, that we are God's workmanship, and the literal Greek is poema. We are God's poem. Each one of us is a poem written by God, a unique and wonderful poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And just occasionally in my work as a doctor, I've gone into the hospital and discovered to my utter astonishment with a whole series of coincidences, guess what? Here is a good work which God has created for me to do. And that's an amazing privilege that all of us can experience. If we really want to put each day as we work and serve into his hands, we will discover that he's been there before us, preparing us, giving us opportunities, good works that we could do. Artificial intelligence, I haven't time, I've run out of time. If you're interested, uh, I'd be delighted to talk a bit about that. Um, this comes under the heading of the new bioethics. The things I've been talking about, particularly abortion, infertility, uh, death and dying, those are ethical issues which have been around for 2,000 years, and Christians have been wrestling with those for 2,000 years. That's the old bioethics. But there's a whole lot of brand new topics which is coming from technology, and one of them is about artificial intelligence and, and how we respond to simulated persons. What, what, how do we respond to, uh, as the technology is advancing, it's going to give us people, so-called, who appear to be people who, who uh, are compassionate, who are empathic, who are caring, and so on. But the entire thing is clever programming. How do we think about that? How are we going to respond to it from a Christian point of view? Just, just to close, as I have said, there are, um, there are some books at the back. So if you're interested in that particular topic, there's a, a new book called The Robot We'll See You Now, which I edited with a friend of mine, uh, Stephen Williams, and that's um, a whole number of Christians discussing issues about artificial intelligence in different areas, employment, healthcare, uh, sex robots, um, uh, surveillance, capitalism, uh, and so on. And there are some other books. Uh, these are three other books. Uh, they're all available at the back. Um, I have a website, johnwyatt.com. If you're interested in following up some more, you can find a lot of free resources there. And just recently, my son Tim and I have been doing a weekly podcast uh, called Matters of Life and Death, which is available on the Premier Christian Radio website, where we talk about uh, news stories to do with technology, ethics, and so on. So you can find that through any podcast service or on the Premier Christian Radio. Thanks very much. John, thank you so, so much. Uh, why don't we just take a five-minute break? Um, maybe you'd like to turn to your neighbor and mention something that has really struck you from what John has said. Perhaps you would like to take this opportunity. Uh, a question has been sparked in your mind that you'd like to ask, um, and please do fill in that form uh, and, and ask your question. Thanks very much. If we could um, look at some of the questions. Great, thank, thank you. And uh, thanks very much for some of these some of these very good, challenging questions. Um, I'll do what I, best I can. I've got them here on this iPad in front of me. Um, and we'll try to 
pull together some of the questions that are on similar kind of topics. Um, starting off, there's a more general question about that says this. Were you able to talk to patients or their families about your faith? If not, how did you find not being able to speak about your faith at such difficult times in people's lives? So, it is an extraordinary privilege of being there as a Christian while you know that people are facing these um, amazing, challenging, difficult issues. But of course, I'm not being paid to be an evangelist. I'm not being paid by the NHS to, to share Christ. And I, so I feel that my primary calling, as I mentioned before, is to be the hands of Jesus. You know, if you're something, if you're something like Jago or Jamie, you know, their primary calling is to be the lips of Jesus, to say the things that Jesus would say in the situations in which you're placed. But if you're someone like a, a medic or a healthcare professional or some other carer, then I think our primary calling is to be the hands of Jesus, to behave in a way, to care for people in the way that Jesus would have cared for them. That doesn't mean to say, you know, that if you're a preacher and you have an opportunity to uh, care for people physically, you know, if you meet somebody in the street who's in desperate, you don't just sort of speak the gospel at them and walk palm by, you are, you know, you would be called to be involved. And in the same way, as a healthcare professional, if I have an opportunity to talk, um, I should take it. And amazingly, those opportunities do come. And so one of the things, you know, when I was a doctor, I realized that I had to prepare myself before I hit the ward uh, or the intensive care unit. I had to prepare myself for that coming day and just try and remind myself that I was there to serve God and praying that he would help me to be his hands and also that if he wanted me to say something, that he would give me an opportunity. And, uh, and amazingly, what I discovered is that as I tried to pray that prayer every day, lo and behold, amazing opportunities. And people just said, you know, do you mind if I ask you a question? And, you know, and do you ever pray? Or, you know, what, what do you believe about this? And so on. And um, it was like, you know, there's little arrows. Opportunity, opportunity. In fact, my prayer changed. So instead of praying, oh Lord, give me an opportunity. The prayer was, oh Lord, when the opportunity comes, help me not to blow it. Um, because I knew that he was going to. And, and so if we go looking for it, we will discover, and praying and asking, we will discover the opportunities are there. And in fact, what I learned is it's perfectly possible to pray and talk to people at the same time. You, you know, while you're talking, taking a history, explaining people, sometimes having a tragic uh, conversation explaining that their baby is dying or has got permanent brain damage. I'm also praying, Lord, if you want me to say something, you know, give me an opportunity. Um, and certainly within the NHS, the rules are quite clear that we mustn't impose our spiritual beliefs, we mustn't manipulate, but if it's relevant and appropriate, and particularly if people ask us, then yes, we can share our faith, we can share what matters to us, and that we're practicing holistic medicine, which involves spiritual care as much as it involves physical care. So, so yes, there are amazing opportunities, but it isn't primarily what you're there for. And, and if you feel primarily that God is calling you to share through your lips and your words, 
then I would gently suggest it would be better if you became an evangelist or a, or a preacher uh, rather than a, a carer, a healthcare professional, you know, that God is steering you possibly in, into a different direction. Okay, so there are a whole number of questions about abortion, and I'm going to try and, um, and, and, and look at some of those. So should churches preach publicly on abortion more? How should Christians talk about it? Well, I think it is desperately important how we talk about abortion. And I'm afraid very often when you hear Christians talking about abortion, you hear this very harsh, judgmental rhetoric about the slaughter of the innocents and about the murdering the babies and about the evils that are going on in our in our country and the problem is because so many people have been affected by this uh, even though they can never talk about it even though it's completely suppressed when christians talk in this harsh and judgmental language it's like a knife is being twisted deep inside people's hearts and it just makes them curl up even more i can't possibly share uh, my own experience and the shame and the guilt that I feel. Um, and it is amazing, you know, how as a society we can talk about the most amazing things. We can talk about sex and about orgasms and we can even talk about child sexual abuse and we can talk about addiction, but we cannot talk about abortion, even though it is so common. It's, it's one of the commonest procedures in the NHS. It's more common than hernia operations or varicose veins or ENT surgery. Uh, and yet there is this complete silence. Um, in fact, what, interestingly, what people say is the one time it comes out is when people get onto their eighth G&T. And as people get completely plastered, sometimes they're crying. And what are they crying about? They're crying about an experience they've had in the past. And it, as I said, it's not just women, it's men who are affected by this as well. So if we're going to talk about it, yes, we ought to talk about it, but we have to talk about it, if you like, not with judgment and rhetoric in our voices, but with tears in our eyes that we recognize and empathize the terrible pain and agony that this issue is and that this touches so many of us. Um, and so... Yes, I, would, I, I do think that, that Christians need to talk about abortion, but they need to talk about it in the right way. They need to talk about it in this compassionate and empathic way. And they need to be pointing towards where people can get help. And um, the, as I mentioned, the crisis pregnancy centers, it's a wonderful work. And there are, if you're interested, um, Susanna can, uh, and others here can point you towards... Um, the um, crisis pregnancy center that's here. And, and maybe you've been touched and moved. Uh, amazingly, last time, I think I was here about four years ago, and, um, and God touched one or two people about the topic of abortion. Now, maybe there are more people here who you feel, actually, you know, this is something I could get involved with. You don't have to be a professional. You, you can volunteer. You can be trained as a uh, crisis pregnancy counselor or as a supporter. Um, so that's an area where, where you might think about it. Another question. If the church is to be serious about abortion, do we need to be serious about adoption? Thinking particularly about cases such as rape, where we, women would be advised to keep the child but may not be in a position to raise it. 
as Christians, do we have a responsibility to adopt if we're going to be anti-abortion? Well, it's a very good point, and, and yes, the, the, the short and obvious answer is yes. Uh, adoption is the obvious uh, answer uh, to, to people who feel that they're not in a position to become a parent, um, but who don't want to destroy the life of their baby. Having said that, there is an extraordinary uh, psychological opposition to adoption in our society. So when we are counseling somebody with a crisis pregnancy, there are always three options. One, continue the pregnancy. Two, have an abortion. Or three, uh, continue the pregnancy and then give the baby for adoption. And, and many, I've had these conversations with people many hundreds of times. And you go through the first two possibilities and then you say, but there's something, another option that I need to, you know, so you've talked about the possibility of having an abortion and how you would feel if you had an abortion. And yes, I'd feel terrible because I'd feel I'd fail my baby, but maybe it was the right thing to do and I'm not in a position to become a parent and so on. And then you come to the third option. And I have to tell you, there is a third option and this is the option of, of, of adoption. And almost the universal response is, oh, doctor, what a terrible thing to suggest. How could you suggest such a thing? So it's perfectly okay to talk about destroying the life of your baby, but the idea of giving your baby away to somebody else is seen as utterly unacceptable in our society. And, it, and it's interesting to think why that is, and, 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 but part of the reason is this terrible word, closure. If I have an, an abortion, yes, it's a terrible thing and, and I'm going to feel guilty for the rest of my life, but at least it's gone. Of course, sadly, the evidence is it isn't gone and it can come back and haunt people even decades later. But the idea that I'm going through my life and somewhere out there is my child who is being cared for and yet I don't know where they are and I don't know if they're being looked after and I don't know anything about them, that is so awful, I cannot contemplate it. So there, there is a a strange kind of um, anti-adoption feeling. Having said that, there are thousands of, of children in the care system who desperately need uh, a parent. And so adoption is uh, an amazing uh, Christian response uh, as an act of grace, of providing a family. And one of the really interesting and exciting things is that it's now becoming apparent that it's, it's perfectly possible for single Christian women to adopt a child. And that is now happening more and more. Um, single women who feel that God is calling them to be a mother, and, and this is the way they can do it. Obviously, they need to have a support group around them, but the church can provide a community that can support a single person in becoming an adoptive mother. And I know a number of people who are in this, on the journey at the moment as single women. So there are, it's another wonderful example of Christian compassion and love uh, and putting our money where our mouth is. Um, another question. Is there any circumstance where abortion is morally right? What about abusive relationships? What about rape? Another, what about where the mother's life is at risk? What about where the baby's got some major malformation? These are, these are called the so-called hard cases. Um, the important thing to recognize is that probably 90% plus of abortions which take place in the UK are not 
the hard cases. They're, they involve uh, social factors, they, various reasons why people get pregnant not unexpectedly and then don't feel they're in a position to continue the pregnancy. So actually, uh, these hard cases are relatively unusual, but they definitely happen. And um, at our crisis pregnancy center in Choices Islington, uh, my wife, who's been a counseling there, counselor there for many years, she has cared uh, and supported parents who've become pregnant uh, through rape or non-consensual sex or abuse. And if she was here and talking about this, what she would say quite strongly is she believes that even in those cases, uh, it's better to continue the pregnancy and support them, the woman through the pregnancy rather than to have an abortion because paradoxically, women who uh, have an abortion following rape, it doesn't solve the problem. In fact, uh, Celia would say, what you're offering to do, here is a woman who's been hideously violated through the whole experience of rape. Her whole femininity, her motherhood has been violated by the rape. And now what you're proposing to do is another violation to destroy the baby in her womb in the mistaken idea that that's just going to solve the problem. And the truth is it doesn't. Whereas, amazingly, uh, I personally and Celia have been involved in a number of cases where women have found the, the courage and the grace to continue the pregnancy and to love this baby, even when they've been, become pregnant through rape. And I can think of one child who Celia counseled, and he became our godchild, and he's now uh, in his teens. And the interesting thing is the mother is just so proud of him. She's so proud of her son. Yes, it was a terrible issue, and yes, there's all the issues of how to explain to him how he came into the world. When he was a younger boy, uh, she told us that uh, she, he said, where's my dad? Why haven't I got a dad? Everyone else has, has got a dad, and I don't have a dad. And she said, well, I'm kind of your mummy, and I'm kind of your daddy as well. And he looked at her, he said, no, you're not. Mummies are girls, and daddies are boys. <laughs> so there was no fooling. No fooling him. So you can see that there are all kinds of issues about how you uh, how cope with what, how a child has come into the world. But nonetheless, our own personal experiences, if it's possible to continue the pregnancy. Of course, I would never judge anybody who felt there was no possibility, the only possible thing to do was to have an abortion. But actually, I genuinely believe there is a better way of continuing the pregnancy. And the same true, even when there are cases for instance, of a baby with a lethal abnormality who's going to die, uh, I genuinely believe it's better to continue the pregnancy and, and care for the baby and love the baby, even if the baby only lives for minutes or hours or weeks, rather than to destroy that life. Um, and, and parents look back to the precious time they had with their baby, even if the baby only lived for minutes and hours. And years later, they look back and said, wasn't it wonderful to be able to hold my baby. Yes, it was tragic, but also it was wonderful. So the one situation where I do think an abortion is morally justified, and that is when the mother's life is at risk, uh, and a rare situation, but it does happen. But what you've got to understand here is that the choices between both the mother and the baby dying, or the mother living and the baby dying, so it's not that you're choosing one life against another. That's not possible. It's medically, it's not possible. 
either both the mother and the baby dies, or you destroy the mother's, the baby's life in order for the mother to live. And in those rare circumstances, I think it is morally justified, however painful and traumatic, to take the life of the baby in order that the mother can live. But the way I think about that, and others have thought about that, is in, in those rare situations, it's like death is already in the womb. The doctor can't stop death in the womb. All the doctor can do is redirect death one way or the other. So we're not introducing death, which is what happens elsewhere in abortion and in euthanasia. We are, uh, death is already there. We are directing death one way or the other. Uh, what is your opinion on scanning for Down syndrome in embryos? Um, so Down syndrome is universally offered during Down syndrome screening, is universally offered um, in, in pregnancy, and the statistics currently show that if a woman discovers that her baby has Down syndrome before birth, 90% of uh, mothers will have an abortion. And it's been shown there are thousands of babies with Down, uh, children with Down syndrome who ought to be here, who ought to be part of our society, and who are not. And in fact, in some European countries, Iceland, Denmark, and some others that have been, uh, it's virtually unknown for there to be anybody born with Down syndrome. It's a kind of search and destroy um, of, of eradicating Down syndrome. And then the question is, is that really right? Is that what we as a society, do we feel that Down syndrome is such an appalling, terrible uh, reality that it's much better to be dead and to kill unborn babies with Down syndrome? And, um, and again, I think it, it seems pretty obvious to me as a Christian that the right thing to do is to welcome children with Down syndrome. And in fact, you know, I've had lots of experience of, of meeting and caring for children with Down syndrome and including adults with Down syndrome. And it's, it's obvious that they bring a great deal, as do many other people with special needs and disabilities, into our society. And what we don't want to do is just eradicate anybody who doesn't fit. Um, and, and unfortunately, the uh, prenatal screening is, is becoming a kind of soft eugenics. It's a kind of eradicating people whose genes don't fit. And the real threat for the future is as our genetic abilities, screening abilities are increasing, it's now possible to get a complete readout of the entire genetic code of a newborn baby. And soon it's going to be possible to do it uh, in an unborn baby. And then the question is, what on earth do we do with all this information about about the baby and how and is it right to have that information so i personally think that it's a christian option to refuse to have those antenatal tests uh, because if the only option that's available is abortion the question is why have the test at all and certainly when celia was pregnant we agreed together that we wouldn't have any of the tests including tests for down syndrome we would have the ultrasound screening because that can pick up things which can need treatment for the good of the baby, but we wouldn't have the tests for genetic abnormalities where there's no treatment. And in fact, I personally think the way God has designed it is that we should meet our newborn babies 
as like little strangers. You know, when you hold your newborn baby in your arms, they're so wonderful. They're just so wonderful. And you fall in love with them because they're just a wonderful little baby. And they're a gift from God. And then over the next 18 years, you discover all the revolting and disgusting <laughs> genetic characteristics that they have. But by then it's too late because you've fallen in love with them. So you meet your child first and then you learn about them. You see, the problem with antenatal screening is that we get a whole lot of information about the baby before we've met them. And we go and we do Google and we look up about all these genetic abnormalities and we fill our minds with a whole lot of unhelpful stuff before we've actually met the child. And so I think that's the wrong way around. I think we're called to meet our child first before we find out about their, their genetics. Um, what is your view on the ethics of IVF given the high chance of wasted fetuses? What would you advise a Christian couple experiencing infertility who were considering it? Okay, so this is a change of topic. This is in vitro fertilization. The standard way of doing IVF is that you give to the mother, the, the woman, uh, a big overdose of hormones to make her produce masses of eggs. So normally, the woman only produces one egg at each monthly cycle, but if in IVF, they often give this uh, hormone hyperstimulation so that the ovaries will produce 10, 15, 20, even 30 eggs at a time. They then harvest the eggs under a, uh, with a sort of surgical procedure, uh, and then they have all these 20-odd embryos in a glass dish. They, they mix them with the sperm. They look under the microscope, and you end up with, a, with maybe 10, 15, 20 embryos. And then they would put back a maximum of two. And then the question is, well, what do you do with the 18? And there are a number of things you can do. You can donate them to another couple, embryo donation. Uh, um, you can do research on them, destructive research, which basically involves destroying the embryo, pulling them apart in order to get stem cells, embryonic stem cells. Um, you can discard them and throw them away, or you can put them in liquid nitrogen, and, and in which case they will survive for years uh, in the deep freeze. Um, and then it, it it's possible to thaw them out and to reimplant them. But a number of people that I know, Christians, have, have gone into this. They've created all these embryos. They're sitting in the, in the deep freeze, and then they're deciding, actually, you know, thank God we've got our two children. What do we do with all the embryos in the deep freeze? And, um, and that's a huge problem. And... And to be honest, the answer is don't go there because you don't have to. That, that's my advice. My advice is don't freeze embryos. You don't have to. And, if, and you only have to, it will be perfectly possible only to create two embryos at a time and just implant those two embryos. What you can do is you can freeze eggs and freezing eggs doesn't seem to have the same kind of ethical dilemmas as, as freezing embryos. So... Um, I think it is possible to avoid the problems. It's, it's a kind of technological problem. 
So one of the things that's happening is that IVF centers are much more aware now that there are Christians and other people who are, much, are concerned about the appropriate use of embryos, and they're prepared to discuss with, with couples you know, how, how they would like to do. And, so, uh, and, and the HFEA, the government regulation body, um, recognizes all this and is, is making uh, provision for, for Christians and so on. So I, I do think that IVF is an option, but it carries a lot of, of problems. Psychologically, it can be incredibly uh, invasive and demanding. You know, in our sexual relationships, we're at our most vulnerable, our most exposed. You know, when you're making love to your partner, you're, you're at your most vulnerable. And the trouble with IVF, it's like you're in bed with your, with your wife or your husband, and you're making love, and all of a sudden the lights go on, and all these people in white coats come marching into your bedroom, and they strip off the sheets, and they say, right, we need a sperm sample from you, and we need to check on your cervical mucus, and we're going to, uh, you know, and, and, it, and at your most vulnerable, you're suddenly being sort of exposed in this really quite painful, and, and, and it can be quite psychologically damaging. So, you know, is this really what we want to do? Uh, is it really so important to us? Or could we consider the possibility, for instance, of adoption and of adopting a child um, who, is, who, who needs a family? And, 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 you know, I think it's a... There is also the way of maximizing natural fertility. Uh, at the moment, because IVF is such a big money spinner, there's a big push for the um, people to push infertile couples towards IVF. Whereas a much more obvious Christian response is say, can we maximize, find ways of maximizing natural fertility using the best uh, biology and, and physiology to improve our fertility? And actually, there are very successful ways of doing that, even though they tend to be rather ignored uh, by many people. With the crisis going on in Ukraine and other places of conflict in the world and seeing the awful destruction of life, when can it be right to take a life? Huge and challenging uh, issue, and I, I can't deal with it in any detail. What I would say is that traditional Christian thinking has always differentiated between the destruction of innocent life, by which I mean judicially innocent life, and the destruction of life either in warfare through self-defense uh, or in judicial execution. And I think, uh, well, if I was in Ukraine, and, you know, and, and there are many, many Christian pastors in Ukraine, would it be possible for me to pick up a gun and shoot a Russian soldier? Um, I can see the desperate, I would agonize over that. I would desperately try to get to be a medic and pick up the pieces uh, rather than taking a gun. But I could imagine if my family were about to be attacked and killed by a Russian soldier, I could possibly um, take a gun and, and, and kill, a, kill a soldier in defense. So I don't, I'm not an absolute pacifist in that sense. And I think that but I do want to differentiate that very clearly from taking an innocent life. So abortion and euthanasia is destroying a judicially innocent life. Of course, I know spiritually that we're all fallen, but um, it, it's clear to me that in Christian ethics makes a, a sharp line between uh, warfare, 
violence and, and killing in warfare and violence and killing in healthcare. They're not the same thing. And I personally think there is never a time that we're called to introduce death, um, even if we do it with the best motives, even if we believe it's compassionate, that life, uh, that, that is something. God gives us, as human beings, the right to create life, but he withholds from us the right to destroy life. That's something he keeps to himself. How do you include or exclude your Christian faith when making ethical arguments, for instance, against physician-assisted suicide? And the second one, if someone is dying and in chronic pain, which is beyond painkillers, isn't loving thy neighbor euthanasia if they, if they ask for it? So when we're talking like this amongst Christians, I would certainly use Christian arguments about why introducing death is, is wrong and destroying God's image and so on. But when I'm out there and I produced a, a booklet for which uh, CARE, the Christian charity, uh, printed and, and distributed to 600 of members of the House of Lords uh, just before the debate, obviously, in that situation, I didn't use a whole lot of Christian arguments because we know that the opposition, those who are trying to promote uh, euthanasia, are particularly saying, well, you're a Christian, so I don't have to listen to you. You're just religious. You've got some kind of weird taboo, so I, I can just dismiss you as being irrelevant. And so in order to avoid that tactic, all the arguments I used were entirely medical, sociological, uh, and evidential arguments. They were based on the, on the evidence of the harm that euthanasia does, uh, the risks of it being abused, the difficulty of creating a, a watertight law, the evidence in other places like Canada of the so-called slippery slope of the way it was being abused. And so it was that kind of, of evidence. Um, so I think, you know, when we're engaging in the public square, we have to be, as Jesus said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that means sometimes we don't always give a straight answer to a straight question. You know, it's very interesting in the Gospels how many times when Jesus is asked a straight question, he doesn't give a straight answer back. He goes off at a tangent. You know, why do you ask me that? You know, and let me ask you a question first. And because he's, he's in a hostile environment, they're trying to trip him up, and he's boxing clever. And yet it sometimes seems to me that Christians, also in a hostile environment, say, oh, I just tell everyone the truth. I just say I'm a Christian and I believe this and... You know, and we think, are you being more spiritual than Jesus? You know, or is there a time actually that we should be clever? I was talking to an American about that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I tell my students, being stupid for Jesus is still being stupid. <laughs> so, so I think we are called, therefore, to be wise uh, to, uh, and decide what um, what's appropriate in the public square. But of course, that we shouldn't manipulate or twist the truth. And, and I'm going to close here because we've run out of time. One of the verses which I found so profoundly helpful is in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. We've always got to be prepared because people are going to ask us, if we're really living out as, uh, if we're really being the presence of Jesus, wherever we are, people are going to say, why? 
as they have repeatedly said to me. So always be prepared for the, to give a reason for the hope you have, but do it with arrogance and judgment. No, do it with gentleness and respect. Those are the hallmarks of how we have to witness to Christ in a hostile environment, gentleness and respect. May God help us to behave in that way and to point to Jesus in the world he's placed us. Amen. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, you've heard the things I've said, you've heard our questions, you've heard our thoughts. I pray if there's things that have been said that are wrong and unhelpful that you would just take them away. But if there's the things that have been said that are true and that are right, then I just pray that you would burn them into our hearts. If there's something you want to say to us, Lord, help us to hear it. I think of that verse that says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So Lord, help us to be listening to you, listening to the Spirit, and help us to learn more of what it means to become the people you made us to be. And we pray it not so that people would notice us or think there was anything amazing about us, but so they would see Jesus and turn to him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.